You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to our live listeners. This is episode six of Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action. On this podcast, we showcase ordinary people, pivotal moments, resilience, and how such experiences lead to impact. I am your host, Dr. Saba Marouf, and here with my friend and co-host, Calvin Moore. Hey! What's up, Calvin? Not much. Our aim is to find and share stories of unique people who are making a difference, each in their own individual ways, using their talents, sparked by their passion. With this podcast, I have a renewed energy and hope to share goodness, to share stories of positivity and promote diversity and inclusivity. I am very excited and inspired to share these conversations and glimpses of some amazing individuals and their stories. Ultimately, I hope to touch upon a wide range of topics and really dig deep into personal stories of motivated individuals making an impact. And today I'm super excited and very humbled to introduce our unsung hero um, of today, and that's my friend. Uh, Hassan Ahmad. Welcome, Hassan. Well, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and Hassan is supposed to be kind of on vacation. And so <laughs> I'm just so glad that thank you so much for agreeing to, you know, get up early and be here on a Friday and supposedly my, on your vacation. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> no, this really worked out awesome because I had actually contacted Hassan and I was um, he lives in D.C. So and actually you are our first out of state guest, too. So that's that's an honor. I'm Ooh, honored. Wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. Milestone for yes. the show. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, and he happened to be in town visiting his uh, in-laws. And so this was kind of a last minute addition, but I'm so happy. And again, thank you so much for giving um, some of your time to us today. And you're, about to, you're about to read all of his like his. His bio and his yes, Vita. it's long. Like, but all that aside, you were the first out of state guest. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Era, so that's what you should put on your wall. <laughs> so, just as a brief introduction, um, Hassan is the founder and principal of the HMA uh, law firm. He's uh, he's an immigration attorney. He's licensed to practice in Maryland and Virginia, and he's fluent and or profe- proficient in eight languages besides English, known and respected among his peers for his knowledge of the law, his research and writing ability, trial skills, and having earned a reputation among his peers as the go-to attorney in matter- matters of immigration law. Hassan is an aggressive, dynamic, and knowledgeable lawyer who passionately believes in fighting for his clients. He's fluent in Urdu, Hindi, and Punjabi, and is able to speak read and write all these languages in their native scripts. He's also proficient in Spanish, Arabic, French, and Mandarin and Cantonese Chinese. I didn't even know those were two different languages. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Um, and if you've ever seen Hassan's business card, it is very cool because he has all the different scripts right there on the card. Is it like when you open up like a new Mac and it says hello and like all the different languages? Is it like Yeah, that? kind of, right? Okay. Do you still have that card? I still do. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, I want to see this. Do you have the card on you? Not on me. Oh, all right. We'll post it on yeah. our page. Um, but yeah, this gives him the ability to relate to his clients in a unique way. Um, and he's a firm believer in unity in diversity. 
Uh, and as such, he's advised nationals of 115 countries around the world and counting. That's pretty cool. He has 14 years of experience in immigration and criminal defense and is especially familiar with the immigration consequences of criminal activity. He regularly counsels his own clients and defense attorneys on the immigration consequences of pleas and convictions for their non-citizen clients. He's lectured before Virginia defense attorneys on the topic, creating social media groups to better train defense lawyers. He's a regular invited speaker and writer on various topics related to immigration and is frequently quoted in local and national media. In the wake of uh, President Trump's executive orders on immigration, Hassan was among the first on the scene volunteering at Washington Dulles International Airport, advocating and representing clients caught by the travel ban. Since then, he has emerged as a voice strongly critical of the new administration's hardline stance and has called out for protections of due process for all immigrants. Hassan holds a law degree from Tulane Law School in New Orleans, Louisiana. Prior to his career as a lawyer, uh, he was a successful and motivational teacher and taught Urdu and Hindi at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina, although he is – why did you do that? He's a diehard Tar Heel, so I don't know how I, he I ended up there. I am a diehard Tar Heel. <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> and also taught high school classes in religion and law. Um, and I have to add, and you know, Calvin, you know this, but our listeners might not know, but I am originally from – North Carolina. Um, and um, so I've known Hudson from a young age and we've known our families go way back. And really, he's always been I know you hate it when I say this, but he's always kind of been. The I post- do. <laughs> Why? It's not true. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's always been the poster child of our community. Yeah. I always remember your wedding. Um, I don't know. I think it was like Omar Baloch and some other guys that had like this. Um, it was really funny. They had like this chart. Showing like his ratings in the anti auntie status, anti approval index yes. is what it was called. Yes, the it's always been index. very high yeah. until he decided to go into law, and then it yeah, dropped a little dropped, right. oh. because you know he didn't go what, into. What he wasn't a doctor. What medicine. Medicine. Oh, doc- oh, medicine. 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 There you go. All right. But then he redeemed himself by you know getting married and having kids, and so he's doing. And that law degree came in pretty handy once that new president got in office, didn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. Now we're all happy. Has your stock gone back up? <laughs> <laughs> Hug your lawyer. All of a sudden, we're the first uh, responders. Right. Yeah. It's nice to get some love every once in a while. Um, and but I want to add to his list of accomplishments um, that he plays at Thubla. Did you teach? He took classes for that. I did. Yeah, I know. Uh, more recently, I think that's cool. Yeah. But actually, more important than that, that he is actually a hafiz, or he's memorized the entire our entire holy book, the Quran, and he actually did this as an adult. He did this during his quote year off after law school. Um, I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm very happy that I was able to devote the time to do it. But since I did it as an adult, my favorite story. It's usually easier for kids to retain all of mm-hmm. the the memorized verses, and so my wife always likes to tell the story when she would pick me up. Yeah, I, <laughs> I would be, you know, there'd be, you know, four, five, six year olds, and seven year olds, and ten year olds, and then there's me. I happen to be six foot four, <laughs> you know, walking out like the remedial student who, you know, just doesn't still doesn't here, really just get not getting it, it right? still here, just not getting it. So law degree can't memorize can't the Quran. Memorize the Quran. <laughs> I, I struggle and I still struggle with it. I'm I'm uh, trying hard to to, to maintain it, and uh, my uh, my own children are uh, trying to to teach them and, and do the same thing. So it's a struggle, but you know I was able to do it. Very cool. So now he lives in Virginia with his family of um, his wife and three children, and his wife Rabia is a, a very good friend of mine, and um, just so happy to have you on here. Thank you, Saba. So. Thank you so much and welcome. 
Um, so yeah. Um, so, so today I just kind of wanted to, you know, I just think that, you know, I've been following you. I mean, we're friends on Facebook and especially recently you've really been, I think, sharing and highlighting some of the stories even before the travel ban, really. I mean, you've been doing that for a while. And then the travel ban, I mean, just, I think, you know, I kind of wanted to talk to you about that, just your experience and we'll get into it, but your experience, you know, at the airport right there on the ground, um, just that immediate, you know, you were there and you were like really in the thick of it. Um, and just, you know, so we're going to touch upon those things. And just also, I think, um, you're like, I, as I mentioned, um, your talents and being multilingual, how that's kind of, uh, helped you, how you've utilized that in a unique way in your own profession. Um, and then I think also, um, you know, just your experience as being an activist couple, how you kind of balance that because your wife, Rabia, is very active, um, you know, in the media and on a national even scene and kind of how you balance that with family life, too. And um, so, yeah, we're going to kind of get into a few different um, topics here today. Great. So I'm excited. So, um, yeah. So I guess I wanted to start off, um, you know, how you decided to go into law and then later how and when you did learn all these languages and when did you realize you could use this talent and intertwine it in your professional life? You know, I wish I could give a really cool answer and say that, you know, I had it all planned out and I sat down and, and put, you know, a bucket list together and life goals. I don't. I don't really have a story <laughs> like that. It really did sort of sometimes you just guide it to where you, you know, are meant to be. Um and I uh, always had a strong interest in, in languages. I, oddly enough, only grew up speaking English. Uh, my parents taught us, I mean, I understood Urdu and Punjabi from listening to them, uh, but we couldn't speak it until I went to Pakistan when I was 10 years old and I couldn't speak to my grandmother. And my grandmother, the only time I've ever seen my mom get scolded in my mm. entire life. Mm. And when we came back to the United States, it was like Urdu boot camp. And that's, <laughs> you know, that's not happening again. <laughs> that's not happening again. Yeah. So, and then she just, and I realized that I, I really enjoyed it. And so I kind of went from there and then got introduced to, we, we, uh, started studying Arabic. Um, and I took French in high school. Um, did you like French in high school? I did. I okay. actually, I just, I started to absorb it and, and I just realized that I really, Enjoyed, uh, uh, learning and, and speaking, uh, different, different languages. See, I hated French. Oh, really? My mother majored in it in college. And then I went to a high school where French was, I went to a small private religious school and all my classes were down one hallway and they had one language and it was French. Right. And I struggled with it at the time. Yeah. And I remember, you know, you're a teenager and you, when you don't want to learn something, you just start acting up and stuff, right? <laughs> and you, you just think you're being funny, but you're acting up because you don't want to learn the lesson. And my French teacher would call my mom and they would talk about me in French. And then I would be grounded for some reason that I couldn't translate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of knew why. Like, but... You had motivation to learn at that point. <laughs> I, I never, I right. never did do well at that language until later when in, in college I started learning languages as well. So, oh. but continue. I'm sorry. No, no. Well, that, that, that's everybody's got a sort of a story about like what is it, what it is that draws them. Sometimes it's the culture. Sometimes it's the food. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, it's just the way the language sounds. And, uh, for me, I just like the ability, uh, to, and I didn't have many people to speak French with, but I thought that at the time, looking back on it, that it would be pretty cool, you know, to grow up and do something where I'd be able to use this, uh, this language and be able to speak to people and relate to them. Um, the quote that I like is from Mandela, which, and where he said that if you speak to a man in a language, 
that he understands you're speaking to his brain, but if you speak to him in his mother tongue, then you're speaking mm. to his heart. Mm. So wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. So that sort of drove me towards, and then I made a friend from Hong Kong in, in, in high school, and he used to write Chinese characters on the board in the morning, and I was just fascinated by it. Uh, and so I asked him to teach me a character, and I just, you know, I learned the proper stroke order and, and how to, to actually uh, to, to write the character. And it just sort of took off from there. I wound up minoring in Mandarin uh, Chinese when I was in college. And uh, Spanish was just kind of because I wound up becoming an immigration attorney. All this was sort of just a series of I, I didn't plan any of it. So I don't really have a cool mm. answer for you. Um, I wonder what you had a knack for learning, you know, a knack for learning languages and picking them, picking them up, even at an older, not older, but as an adult, you know? Right, right. I, it's just something that I just enjoyed. And I think part of it is that I, I never really was that afraid of sounding like a third grader. I still sound like a third grader in a lot of these <laughs> languages. But if I can make my point heard, like I said, and, and understood, that's all that's really important at the end of the day. Well, it's kind of interesting looking at, at, at the languages, Spanish and French, you know, Latin-based languages. There's going to be some overlap there. Um, Arabic, Mandarin, Cantonese um, are... As far as I recall from my studies, I, I studied Hebrew and Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hebrew is more pictorial, those ancient Semitic languages, um, which Arabic, Mandarin, Canton, and, uh, Cantonese, Chinese, Japanese all kind of have this pictorial type language. But I don't know uh, much about Urdu, Hindu, or uh, Punjabi. Uh, am I pronouncing those correctly? Urdu, Hindi, and Punjabi. Yeah. Punjabi okay. Yeah. Um, what kind of languages are those? I mean, I know where they're from, but... So they're actually Indo-European languages okay. as well, okay. uh, but they're from the Indo-Iranian branch. Okay. Um, so they're, they're different, you know, but if you look hard enough, you can actually see, uh, similarities, similarities. between like English and Spanish and Romance, other, uh, Indo-European languages. Okay. So, very cool. uh, so. So learning so many kind of helps to learn, does learning one kind of sometimes it, help to learn the next it one? It gets easier. Okay. Yeah. Very it cool. gets easier. Good. And I'm sure, I mean, I know, of course, <clears throat> that's been valuable as an immigration attorney. But I mean, how has it? Been? Yeah, no, I mean Spanish, which I never studied, but um, it's actually funny. I I didn't realize that I uh, actually you actually don't realize how much you absorb just by being you know uh, hearing Spanish all the time, mm-hmm. whether it's in court or um, you know living in an area where there are where there's a large Latino population. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shared offices with an attorney from Argentina and all of his clients, good 90 plus percent were, were Spanish speakers. And so I would hear it in the office every day. But whenever somebody would call my office and ask if somebody spoke Spanish, we'd be like, no. And then one day somebody called and I don't know what went through my head. I just realized, let me just try to fake it and see if I can just get through. Because when you speak French, you know, I studied French and English put together, I figured I would just try to put something together <laughs> and it worked. I don't know how, but I guess I just realized from that day, I, I, I consciously applied myself to try to uh, uh, speak uh, and, and understand as much Spanish as I could. And I'm not going to say I'm fluent, but, uh, you know, I can definitely get by. Am I the only person, though, who sees like a little kid speaking like any other language? And automatically thinks that that kid's like super smart because you don't know that language. But <laughs> right. like he's like Hispanic. So he's like growing up in a, in a Spanish speaking home. Like, yeah. Oh my God, that kid knows Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> he's so smart. It's so hard for me. Like, <laughs> he's probably looking at me going, man, that guy knows English. I don't know. Well, well I mean, he probably course, knows English as well, but you know, whatever. Well, now they're opening up all these child language centers. Um, I actually see this in my own daughter. She kind of walks around the house just 
actually even like I my we don't speak that much Urdu in the home and mm-hmm. I don't know if it's being a second generation thing but the few things that I've said to her she had picked and you know she's my third I have two boys and just there's a difference she's picked it up and remembers it and she I can tell that potential in her that she wants to learn a language and now they do have these child language centers hmm. that you know by the time you're in high school it's almost like you should be starting before you know like you're five or Absolutely. under the age of 10 right. so they've opened up these it's kind of thing in the area it's called bright loritos you know what i should i'm putting a plug in for them they don't even know it um but it's really you know they can learn all these different languages so i think that's really neat and that's something that i'm looking into too so i mean you, you faked it till you made it you know you know, picked up the phone okay i'm gonna just try this um but the languages that you do know the languages that you have picked up given the the background that you're in being an immigration lawyer how does that play into the professional mm-hmm. the professional background that you have well, language, I think, is an expression of culture and um, a lot of but what we do, for example, I mean, obviously, there's the obvious benefit of being able to speak to somebody who doesn't speak English, right? you know, and uh, or, or doesn't speak any other language. Or even if they do speak, they they need to feel comfortable in expressing uh, what frequently is a very traumatic or emotional story. Uh, especially in the case of, say, asylum cases. Uh, and, we talked and about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, the, yeah, the the traumatic experience of immigrating from one place to another. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. And and some, it's hard enough to talk about that at all. It's even harder to do that in a second, third, mm-hmm. or fourth language. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people will feel a lot more comfortable uh, opening up to their lawyer um, uh, in in their own native language. And so that that that's certainly an obvious benefit. But there's more subtle benefits as well. Um Language being an expression of culture, when you speak or learn a language, you learn a lot about what people's uh, cultures are as well. Some cultures, for example, are very um, visual, and it's not a real conversation, not really going to open up. They're not going to open up to you on the phone. They'll, we we want to mm-hmm. make sure that they actually come into the office and meet face-to-face, uh, even if it would be easier by phone. Um, a lot of times it just needs to be, it needs to be done face to face because the culture is visual and the person needs to be able to see who they're talking to in order to open up. Um, other times just, uh, little things like, um, people from certain countries, you want to ask them about their family members. They're going to include people that they consider to be like their brother or sister because where they're from, it would be an insult to not consider someone who's not related by blood to them. To, to call them anything but uh, a brother, you know? Uh, and so you always have to be careful because immigration forms are very unforgiving. Interesting. Oh, you yeah, know? Right. And okay. so you see my point is that, you know, you can't mm. talk to someone and list someone as a brother. Um, other people, for example, might, uh, might not want to disclose, you know, who their other family members are for whatever cultural reason. Maybe they don't want other people to, to, to find out. Maybe it was a, a forbidden marriage or something like that. But failure to disclose family members and relationships can have very serious consequences on immigration. Um, plus there's the idea you get a sort of a, an understanding of, 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 of how people remember events. And there's a, there's a tendency for us to assume that if someone cannot relate their story with a beginning and a middle, a middle and an end, that they somehow are lacking in intelligence. And, you know, I've found that not to be the case. A lot of times people just don't remember things that, oh, okay, this happened, you know, in, in, in June of 1990 and then later on in September of 2001 or whatever it is, you know. 
Um, or even just traumatic events or and traumatic that affecting events. cognition, cognition, and memory, yeah. exactly. Not everything right. is thought of linearly. Not actually. everything is thought of linearly. My favorite example of that is in in Urdu and Hindi. A lot of North uh, North Indian languages, our word for yesterday and tomorrow <laughs> is the same. Oh, as is the wow. word for day after tomorrow and the day before yesterday. So it takes context to understand what someone's saying then. I yeah. Guess. I also think it's why we're always late to think. <laughs> I've, heard so I've heard that. Yeah. Yesterday, tomorrow, you know, whatever. Same, whatever. <laughs> so I want to kind of get into just, you know, the current events. Um, and before we talk about your role um, as an immigration attorney, just personally, what were your thoughts and feelings um, immediately after hearing about the travel ban um, and the executive order? And what were those first few days like for you? Um, it wasn't unexpected. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like we were shocked and, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening because we, you know, I. You saw his campaign. Right? Yeah. I, I was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Nobody I should be a surprised. a couple of news reports <laughs> and, yeah, it was it was kind of around. Not exactly a, a big secret. Um, the only thing was, you know, what form it would take and, and what I didn't un- anticipate was how poorly it would be executed. Um, you know, and so my first thoughts, I guess, we, uh, the text of the order was released on, on Wednesday, January 25th. And, um, I went through it, tried to write up something and say, look, look, this is what I think this means. We don't know exactly what, you know. It's important to tell what what uh, what you can tell, but it's also important to say, hey, we don't know, you know, what we don't know as well. That's also important to to explain. Um, and uh, we didn't know exactly when it was going to be signed. It turned out to be signed that that Friday, the twenty seventh of January. Um, but almost immediately, there was a, a, a realization amongst uh, my colleagues that look, we don't know what's going to wind up happening, but we should create sort of an emergency response team at the airports to just deal with whatever comes. We don't know what's going to come, but we know that if we're there physically, then, you know, we can at least try to help and, and do something. So I signed up. I mean, there was a, uh, sort of a Google sign up sheet that went around, made the, made the lists and, and, um, and I signed up for a shift on, on Saturday evening. Washington Dulles International Airport is about 10 minutes from my house. Um, I have represented clients there, uh, at the deferred inspection unit. I know some of the officers, the CBP officers, customs and border protection officers there. So I thought that maybe my familiarity with the setup at Dulles might be of benefit. And so I, so I signed up. So Saturday morning, the next morning, the 28th of January, I taken my son to a basketball game and, uh, I heard that, um, that two, uh, brothers from Yemen, and 19 and 21 years old were, uh, turned away that morning and they had come in from a flight uh, on a flight from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, and they were green card holders. They had valid green cards and, um, and they were coming back into the United States and they had previously already been admitted for lawful permanent residence. And because they were from Yemen, uh, Yemen was one of the seven countries, you know, banned. They were turned away. And they were sent back. They were detained and, uh, they were not, not allowed to meet with any lawyer. Uh, they were not granted access to counsel at all. They weren't told where they could go find a lawyer. They were just said, you have to go back. And to add insult to injury, uh, apparently at some point, either at the airport or when they got back, they were pressured. And I'm holding my fingers up in quotation marks, uh, uh to, uh, sign a form I-407, which is a voluntary Mm. Again, quote unquote, voluntary relinquishment of permanent resident status. So they were 
essentially coerced to give up their green cards. That's all been fixed now, by the way, through litigation. So, you know, at least there's a happy ending to that particular story. But when I heard about this happening, I realized all of a sudden what it would mean because I started getting phone calls and emails and messages, um, you know, on, on, on cell phone, on my, my work email, at the office, on Facebook, on Twitter, everywhere. And people were sending messages in the middle of the night, which suggested to me that they were losing sleep over this. And it wasn't just people from the banned countries, uh, from the seven countries at the time. Uh, they were U.S. citizens calling me saying, is it okay for me to travel now? There were mm-hmm. people who, you know, had pending, you know, citizenship applications. They were valid green card. Oh, they weren't from the seven countries. Nobody knew exactly what this would mean. Nobody knew whether they would be affected. And I couldn't, I didn't know what to tell them because for the first time I had the benefit, I had the benefit of 14 or 15 years of, uh, of experience, but I couldn't tell what was going to happen. Not in the presidency of the tweet. How, how are you supposed <laughs> to tell, you know, like what, what's going to happen? So I went to Dulles airport and governor, um, McAuliffe, Terry McAuliffe of Virginia and also the attorney general of Virginia, Mark Herring, uh, were there first on the scene at about 4.30 in the afternoon. And they tried to go and negotiate for the release of those two. At those point, the two Yemenis were were still detained somewhere in the catacombs of the airport. And um, <coughs> they couldn't they couldn't get through. They were absolutely stonewalled by CBP. And uh, the governor of a state. Correct. Interesting. And the attorney general of that state. Wow. Were okay. not allowed to meet with the Commonwealth of Virginia residents that were detained, lawful permanent residents that were detained at Washington Dulles International Airport that day. And it's weird because two days before, I could have gone back there. Anybody could have. I knew a lot of these officers. I mean, they had a phone number. They had a an office. They had office hours. I could have walked in there. I could have made my case. Someone would have at least, you know, answered the phone. Someone would have at least talked to us, shown their face, even if it would be behind a a glass door. But we would have had some sort of access. Um, so, you know, if the governor of a state and the attorney general wow. of that state, I, what, I mean, at that point, we realized what we were up against. So um, some colleagues of mine got together and went and they got an emergency temporary restraining order. They went straight to federal court that same Saturday. Apparently, yes, there is a procedure for this uh, for sort of after hours uh, legal emergencies. Um and by about 8 or 9 p.m., this was around the same time that the ACLU was doing, uh, they, they had filed a case, uh, up in, up in New York as well. Um, but here in Virginia, or in Virginia, we had, uh, Judge Brinkham assign this order, which stated simply that the detained permanent residents at Dulles Airport must be allowed to meet with the volunteer lawyers at Dulles Airport. And by this point, there were like hundreds of people there. It was a, a sort of a welcoming rally. People held up signs. Mostly non-Muslim, but they were saying Islamophobia has got to go. Uh, refugees are welcome here. And one thing that I was really heartwarming was just seeing every single person that walked through the international arrivals hall. Uh, people would just yell out, "Welcome to America!" Aww. You know, Aww. like every single person, every single. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter where they where they were from, where they were coming from. There were people that were coming, you know, back home. They probably had like, just. I, I live here. I, I live here. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not uh, my first time. Not my first time. My house is right down <laughs> right down the street. Right. right? <laughs> exactly. But it didn't matter. Right. It just everybody it was, cool. was just sort of in the. It was very cool. Right. Um, and there were a bunch of my colleagues there as well. A lot of other people that showed up and and you know tried to figure <laughs> out. And so we started to see the beginnings of sort of this ad hoc law firm 
growing organically out of the international arrivals hall. I mean, people were bringing in printers and like power strips to charge phones. And there were a bunch of people on their laptops doing legal research and trying to figure out, you know, what to do. Um, and, uh, uh, it, it slowly started to take shape, like very organically that, that same, that same evening. And, uh, we started printing out entry of appearance forms so that we could go and, and meet with the, uh, detained clients. Cause we figured, Hey, now we get a court order, um, that says that they have to do it. And CBP still said no. At this point, how many detained people? We were, were told, again, we never got mm. back there, so I can't mm. independently verify it, but we were told 50 to 60 people how and, wow. and this day they thought at this point the secretary of homeland security still had not come out and said that the travel ban did not apply to lawful permanent residents to green card holders okay i'm i'm not a lawyer uh i can think like one if, if i need to but i'm <laughs> as far as i understand the constitution i've had this argument with a number of people uh, oh you know they're not legal residents or things like that we're talking about illegal aliens at this point uh, or Undocumented workers, because uh-huh. um, people prefer that term, and I understand why. Right. Um, oh, you know, the Constitution doesn't apply to them. Yeah, it does. As far as I understand, the Constitution, the protections of the Constitution apply to anybody who is within our borders. That is how the Constitution works. And so when I hear something like this um, of people who are actual legal permanent residents not being allowed to see lawyers, I'm going, that's not just bad or we don't we don't know what's going on i'm going that's a violation of someone's constitutional rights at that point is is there going to be any kind of lawsuit against the government and or can you sue the government in, in in this kind of case yeah you can and it was done and it's ongoing okay and and so that's certainly you know good to see thus far our system of checks and balances and the uh judiciary has stepped up yeah, and I think did. it's significant. They did big time. And, um, it's significant that in that, that first travel, first travel ban, uh, out of the four or five lawsuits that were immediately filed, no judge found that, uh, a temporary restraining order was not to be granted. So they all granted temporary restraining orders. And in order to grant a TRO, um, there has to be a prima facie showing by the moving party that there is a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. In other words, you're not going to – usually you want to have a full hearing to decide whether, you know, to grant an extraordinary relief like shutting down a travel ban mm-hmm. or invalidating a travel ban. But these judges said that in just the way things had progressed up to that point, it had only been several hours, right, that there was a uh, significant likelihood that um, – that the moving parties and whether it was a state or whether it was an individual or, or whatever would be <coughs> successful on the, uh, on the merits. And so granting a TRO is considered an extraordinary sort of form of relief. And I think it's very significant mm-hmm. that every court that saw it, every court that got a case that day, um, all decided that, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's worthy of that type of extraordinary relief. So okay. the thing that'll stick with me and I'll close with this on this point is when the, crowd found out and by now it's like 10 11 p.m at night which day saturday saturday night yeah mm-hmm. at, at, uh, at dallas and when they found out that um the detained that there were detainees back there that were not being denied that were being denied access to counsel um their chanting shifted from you know refugees are welcome here immigrants are welcome here and the heartwarming stuff to let them see their lawyers and just yelling out the words due process. Mm. And what'll, the reason why it sticks with me is 
That's exactly the kind of thing that I have to document in asylum cases for people from countries as diverse as El Salvador to Pakistan to Yemen. You know, one of the things you've got to show is a government inability or lack of willingness or refusal to uh, provide protection from the persecution. If you're being persecuted by, say, a non-state actor like a gang or an extremist group or a terrorist, whatever, the government not being able to protect you is one of the things that you have to show. And here we have the same thing happening, you know, a government agent coming in saying, no, we're going to detain you. We're going to send you back. We're not going to give you a hearing. And even though there's lawyers right here, you know, just through these doors, we're not going to let you meet with them because um, you have no right to counsel. Uh, seeing that happening 10 minutes from my house in Virginia mm -hmm. is something that I'm probably never going to forget. You mentioned that you were at a basketball game um, that morning and, you know, our kids are our oldest sons are the same age, same 10 age. years old. And yeah. I was kind of wondering, how did you so he kind of knew, you know, dad's not has to go to the airport and kind of knew something was going on. How did you explain the travel ban to your 10 year old? Wow. Um, so he, he knows a lot about what I do and asks a lot of questions. He knew what a green card was at the age of five. So <laughs> maybe he's a little more, um, you know, uh, uh, knows a little bit more, has a little bit more familiarity with it. Um, but let's not mince words. I mean, he knew that it was a Muslim ban because it's, that's exactly what it was. We say travel ban out of convenience, but in reality, it was a Muslim ban. And I it's think not Sean just Spicer me called saying it that. that, as did uh, President Trump called it that. Yeah, even though they, of course, flip flop and yeah, backtracked we'll, on we'll it. Yeah, at one we'll point, even said that it wasn't even a ban. Um, but I don't, I don't really understand where they got that from. <laughs> what did you call it? Yeah, what do Are you call it? Are people able to come in? No. But it's not a ban <laughs> because yeah. this is a thesaurus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, but yeah, we, we, he called it a Muslim ban. Uh, that's what I explained to him. Um, uh, because I think that's the easiest way for a child to, to understand, um, you know, we can sit here and talk about national security and, 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 um, and, uh, 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 procedural due process and whatnot. These are the issues that are, you know, litigated and fought out in court. But the reason why, and Judge Brinkema said this, that she was really surprised. Judge Brinkema, who was the federal judge in Virginia who issued the first, one of the first TROs, um, said that this set off something. She recognized that this ban set off something. Uh, that, that she didn't expect. And she had never seen this sort of response to a government action like this before. Um, and I think in large part, it's because it touched upon, uh, who we actually are as Americans. It touched upon, uh, the freedom to exercise religion. You can say all you want that it's geographically based, that it's based on, on countries that are sponsors of terrorism or where terrorism can flourish or they don't have sufficient vetting procedures. But that sort of point of view is completely, uh, 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 you know, it's invalidated by a declaration written by, uh, 10 or more, uh, current and former national security advisors. I mean, John Kerry and Madeleine Albright, people that served in Democratic and Republican administrations that put in a declaration, uh, along with the, the lawsuit, uh, that I'm, that I'm talking about with the two Yemeni brothers that Virginia actually successfully intervened in. That said, um, not only does this travel ban or Muslim ban not do what it says it's going to do, it actually undermines national security mm -hmm. because it actually feeds into that uh, clash of civilizational narrative. 
It endangers our troops on the ground in those countries. So it not only does it not do what it says it's supposed to do, it actually undermines national security. And they had intelligence. Some of the members who wrote that declaration um, had intelligence that was current as of a week before the travel ban. So what changed? Why did all of a sudden, what sort of justification could the administration have had to justify a ban of that nature um, uh, when people with actual decades of experience were saying the exact opposite? And the answer is clear. They had none. They had no justification to do it. It's very clear to me after watching this sort of progression from the fact that the the calls for a total and complete shutdown on Muslim immigration um, was still on Trump's uh, website as of the date that these cases were being fought. It probably is still up there. Um, and the judges, you know, did not they, – they noticed that. You know, and they're saying we're not going to be constrained by the four corners of this order that set, talk about different countries uh, as if it's a geographical issue. No, this is a Muslim. We're going to look at the what was said on the campaign trail. We're going to look at when Giuliani came on national TV and said, hey, Trump came to me and asked me, how do you ban Muslims legally? Um, we're going to look at all of that stuff because it is relevant to determining whether or not as a matter of law uh, there was a uh, religious animus played a base in enacting uh, enacting this policy. Did you get a sense of the chaos that was at play or that I mean was there I'm that's kind of I think from the outside what we started to sense, you know, right. days after. But did you get a sense of that in the airport that it was kind of even the way it was being executed was chaotic oh, and no one knew what the heck was going on? I or how to if you execute ask me, it. Yeah, no, if you ask me personally, I mean, just anecdotally from seeing that the way it was rolled out that poorly, it might be the fact of an incompetent uh, or just poorly uh, prepared, poor preparation, poor execution. But it did remind me of when I first started practicing law, we had the uh, NSEERS program, the National Security Entry Exit Registration System. It was a Muslim registry from back then. There were 25 countries. Again, it never said that they were Muslim, uh, that it was a Muslim registry, but 24 out of the 25 countries were Muslim majority countries, the 25th being North Korea. Um, and so they threw in one for good measure. Like, they're not all Muslim. No, see, they're not all, right. <laughs> right. It's the token non-Muslim right. country, right? But it's North Korea, yeah, really. But it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You almost kind of have to, right. you know, put North Korea in there. Um, and that and how many North Koreans are actually, you know, going to be applying for visas to come to the right. United States and who's going to get not being allowed out. They're so. not being allowed out. So, um, yeah. So back then too, there was just a lot of helter skelter, a lot of confusion. People were told different things. They were said that, look, if you have, uh, and by the way, that people, uh, that applied only to males from certain countries who are of a certain mm-hmm. age, who have certain visa categories and, and they would issue these, um, they'd publish these requirements in the federal register. And it was staggered. It wasn't like 20, all 25 at one time. They put on some countries and took some off, put some more on, and that's how it worked from 2002 until 2011 when all the countries were removed. And um, people were told different things. They were like, you know, this is being done for national security and you have to come in and you have to register. But if you have a pending application but you haven't gotten uh, your green card yet, that's fine. Don't worry. You're not going to get detained. People get detained anyway. You know, it was meant to to uncover um, risks of of terror related uh, of terrorism, risk of terrorism. Um, but after nine years of running that program, um, there were zero terrorism related investigations. But eighty four thousand people were registered, thirteen thousand people were placed in were detained 
Almost 3,000 were deported. So all it really did was to break up a lot of families and destroy a lot of businesses and destroy a lot of lives uh, at what cost? And then that's the end justification. In 2011, they said, we're going to take all the countries off of the, uh, off of the, off of the list because, you know, this isn't working. Right. So let, let's, let's make it personal for a minute because where we are, I mean, we, we're recording right now in Podcast Detroit and Royal Oak, Michigan, Southeastern Michigan. And southeastern Michigan, as far as I understand, it has the largest concentration of Arabic people outside of Iraq in Dearborn, Michigan. And then we also have a very large uh, Hispanic population as well uh-huh. uh, in uh, in southwest or Mexican town, uh, depending on how you refer to it. And so you've got people uh, when uh, when this executive order came down uh, that were freaking out uh, on both sides. And so like there are certain areas you can go to in the United States, like huge Hispanic population, never met a Muslim, but that Hispanic mm-hmm. you know, population is like, what's going on? Uh, and then you have other areas that is just a, a Muslim population where they're freaking out. We have both mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a lawyer. You do take, I mean, obviously you went to the, to the airport and, and did what you did there, but I'm sure as an immigration lawyer, you have personal stories, personal clients that you meet with. What are some clients that kind of stick out to you from, uh, from your career doing this? Uh, you mean since the travel ban? Either just before the travel ban or, or from the travel ban, whichever. Yeah. Yeah. So the, when Trump was elected, the call started really coming in on like November 9th. I mean, that's really when they started coming in. Um, and even though Muslims and Latinos were sort of the two groups that were targeted mostly, you know, you talk about building the wall, uh, to try to keep out all the Central Americans. And then you've got, you know, talking about shut down a Muslim immigration. So you got one, 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 uh, one line that says, you know, keep them out. Another one that says kick them out. Right. Right. That's kind of where, where it goes. And Latinos, the Latino population kind of got the kick them out and the, uh, mm-hmm. the Muslims got the keep them out, uh, order. Either way, the result is the same, you know, in getting rid of minorities and immigrants. Um, but, the first person to actually send me a message on the morning of November 9th was actually a same-sex couple that I had done a green card for. Um, if I had had to rank all of, and, and there was a U.S. citizen and, uh, the gentleman, his, her, his husband was from, um, from El Salvador, I believe. And we had done, you know, we'd gotten him his green card and they'd gotten married and, and they were, they were fine. And if I had to rank, all of my uh, clients in terms of which ones I was uh, current and former clients that I'd be worried about, they would have been near the bottom. They were from a legal perspective, they were fine. Their, their, you know, documentation was good. They, they, they were going to be fine. Um, but they were the first ones to call. They were the first ones to call and they were like, what is going on? What's going to happen? Is there any way we can file for his citizenship as quickly as possible? Uh, is there any way that you know, you know, around the, the waiting periods and, and, and whatnot? And I had to tell them that no, unfortunately, you are going to have to wait. Um, but I was able to try to give him some sort of, uh, some sort of peace that, look, you know, um, whatever happens, I don't know exactly what's going to wind up happening either. But right now, you're okay. Right now, you're okay. There are certain precautions you can take, yada, yada, yada. Um, but it struck me that, but it struck me that, um, it wasn't people just from the targeted, like the undocumented Latino community or people from like banned <coughs> countries, you know, that were, that were calling. They were calling too, but it was, you know, U.S. citizens, people that were on solid legal, sta- had solid legal status. And that I think was due to the fact that despite the entire campaign trail, uh, uh, Trump and the, uh, 
and his transition team were talking about stamping out illegal immigration and people who were here without status. Yet the first people within a week of his uh, taking office, the first people that he went after hmm. were people with valid visas and valid green cards. Um, so, you know, that's something that really, really struck, uh, uh, struck out at me. There were a lot of other people who, um, uh, the biggest problem is that, uh, is the uncertainty. Uh, I'm not going to say that it was engineered that way. It was, I assume, incompetence before malice, but, um, yeah, the fact that it was know, so kind of ran on a campaign of malice. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be judicious. I'm trying to be, you're right, all right. I'm not me. <laughs> I don't have to be. You don't right. have to be. But yeah, it's, you, you, you look at the way, uh, these people and the fear was just absolutely palpable. We had problems getting clients to come to our office to sign their own immigration paperwork because they were afraid of getting pulled over. Wow. On the way over. I understand that. She did not want, we actually did go out and personally deliver and do some house visits and whatnot just to get people to sign their own forms for their own protection because they were that afraid. We had people calling in saying, should I even go to my court date? Right. I'm like, yes, because not going to your court date is going to be even worse. You have to figure out a way. Um, but hasn't ICE been at, at a few of and these court dates and, and detained people? Yeah. Exactly. And so there's so it was a lot reasonable of fear. fear. It wasn't, no, it's, it's absolutely justified. And they're asking me like, hey, you know, what's going to wind up happening? Uh, I, When the law is changing, I say, look, I can tell you what I what would have been the answer last week or last month or last year. But what I tell you now, and people ask me about, about travel plans in the next two months, they're asking me for what to do on on uh, on May the second. I say, call me on May the first. I'll let you know what the law is on that day. Now, I know it personally impacted me. I talked about um, losing my grandmother two weeks ago today, and she lived in Canada. I mean, I was born here. We've been citizens for years, but right. we, like many Muslims, I mean, we were set to go during February kids break and I wanted to go see her. I knew that she didn't have much time and we had been planning this for a while. We're like, we're going to go. And, you know, that time came and we just we were just too afraid. I just said, is it I don't know what's going to happen at the border if I'm going to be stopped or if we're going to be detained and how that's going to be for the kids. And so I didn't go and she passed away two weeks ago. So but um, it's so sad to hear. And yeah, you're not the only one I've heard very similar stories from from other people as well permanent residents who one one guy i know was supposed to go on umrah on the pilgrimage decided not to go he asked me you know what could happen i told him i told him i didn't overestimate or underestimate just said you know what it was and he canceled his trip and so that insecurity i mean that's just so you know we've never experienced anything like this this right. is just the antithesis of American way of life and, you know, all of our ideals of freedom and, and all of that. Um, how have you been taking care of yourself mentally? I mean, you hear pretty, um, heart wrenching stories and I mean, firsthand and I guess, you know, have you like, do you do anything for like, yeah, basically, yeah, vicarious trauma is (laughs) a real thing and self care and kind of just taking care of yourself. I mean, I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm going to ask you, but, (laughs) (laughs) and your, your mom's a psychiatrist. My mom is a psychiatrist. That's true. Um, Mom, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I realized early on that I would have to pace myself. So I've tried not to, you know, go overboard with it. I mean, it was really easy to like stay at the airport all the time and use all, all of your time. But I realized that if you, you know, burn yourself out, then you're not really good to anybody. And so I've, I've 
first thing I did was to try to figure out like what my role in this whole thing would be. Am I going to be one of the litigators? Am I going to be one of the, uh, uh, you know, volunteers at the airport? Where can I actually best fit in? Um, and I, 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 I do the legal work. I'm actually, you know, obviously people are coming into my office and I'm kind of, you know, helping them through that, that, that entire process. Um, but part of what is really, uh, fulfilling to me and hence therapeutic is, uh, to, to write about it. And that's what I've been mm-hmm. doing. So yes, I do take time off to, you know, turn the phone off and, and, and try to, to just, you know, detach from it. Um, because we're all exhausted. You talk to any immigration attorney and everyone's like, since January, it just has not been normal. It's been nonstop burning the candle at both ends. And, and, uh, it's that, that's not sustainable, obviously, you know, it, it's, it'll burn a lot of people out. So I'm trying to be careful to, to pace myself because I know that this is likely to be a a lengthy fight. Can you share some success stories or? positive stories every every good every person who gets a green card now it feels like a you know (laughs) yeah "Yeah, we got one got another one confetti poppers (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) even a little work permit or something you know it used to we didn't we didn't worry about them at all and and, you know but now it just feels like you you've gone up against a bureaucracy and you've and you've won something um but yeah no we had um has this been made primarily more difficult for people who are essentially brown? Like if a guy wants to come in, my friend is marrying a guy from Ireland, mm-hmm. Ireland or Scotland. They're both the same in my mind. I know they're totally different. <laughs> Sorry, Irish and Scottish listeners. Um, but my husband uh, was born in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> so he's probably like, oh, no. um, but uh, I don't know why I made I'm a pirate in that. But um, she they they went through the process really no process no problem for mm-hmm. him as far as i understand very smooth sailing there were a few hiccups but not the there was never any fear as far as i understood on her part of him not getting a green card right. not getting permanent resident status for marrying her and things like that so is this primarily pertaining is this fear basically on the part of brown bodies you know i don't i wouldn't be able to to give you um empirical evidence of it but after doing this for about 15 years, um, yeah, people from, from certain countries are going to have to worry about things that other people who are going through the same process are mm. definitely going to have to worry about things that other pe- people from other countries don't have to worry about. Okay. So um, there is definitely some of that. There are added risks. Okay. Um, we do have a concept of, for example, Muslim processing time. Uh, yeah, people from certain Muslim countries are just going to wind up having to, to wait a little bit longer. Um, I often joke that the, uh, length of time you're going to have to wait for your green card is in proportion to the length of your beard if you're a guy. <laughs> so, so I'd, I'd get in like, no, well, uh, I'd be brought here, well, involunt- then, I'd be brought here involuntarily regardless. So, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, right. Ooh, anyway, a different kind of everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I suppose so. Yeah. Well, I, I was going back to what uh, I think it was Ben Carson. You know yeah. what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I understand right? exactly yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. For those of you listening, I'm black. So maybe you'll get the joke now. <laughs> maybe. Oh, joke. now. What's he talking about? Does he have a short beard, a long beard? All right. No, I have black skin. Yeah. So there you go. So. Okay. So as um, kind of going back, um, mentioned, I know I kind of mentioned, um, you know, just family life and your role. I mean, we talked about self-care and that Rabia, your wife, is very active as well. And how do you kind of 
kind of switching gears here, but how do you kind of balance being so active in the community with, you know, being your kids and then with your kids and then self-care and... I think that's a constant struggle and I'm not going to pretend to say that we're actually good at balancing. I think we're all just sort of figuring out, um, you know, uh, my, my wife, Rabia works. She's the director of communications for the Muslim public affairs council, um, which is a, a lobbying, you know, group that does a whole lot of work behind the scenes and, and, uh, has had a lot of good, good success. It's sort of a different model from where she used to be. She used to be with care, the council on American Islamic relations also in DC, She's also worked for Islamic Relief, so she's been <laughs> around mm-hmm. all of the sort of large policy and, and Muslim, um, or, uh, 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 activist, you know, organizations. Um, and, uh, it's tough. It's tough. I think we're all still trying to find our lanes and try to figure out like exactly how to balance it. I mean, we definitely try to take time out and, and turn our phones off and, and, uh, and, and laptops off and just spend time with our, our children and, and do whatever we can to uh, take your mind off of it. Um, my wife went on vacation to celebrate her 40th. Um, so, you know, that was pretty cool. You made her 20th. Right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> put that out there. What? Put oh, that out there. <laughs> <laughs> she was, you know, it's good to be able to, to take, take that time and it's absolutely necessary. Um, Actually, that's a good question. Was she nervous coming back in? Or planning the trip. Oh, so she, well, she went out of the country on this she, vacation. She knew a good immigration lawyer. So. Okay. 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 That's good. Yeah, she had good <laughs> <That> counsel. <laughs> <laughs> good thing you weren't having an argument when she was coming back like, I don't know exactly. if I can help you, honey. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, but, okay, so you, you, it's kind of a balancing act, trying to figure it out like I think we all are in our marriages and whatnot. But uh, how, do you, how do you keep your kids uh, proud of their cultural yeah. and religious heritage in this particular in the era of 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 trump right now uh, how do you keep how do you keep them proud of their heritage rather than i need to hide this because of what could possibly happen to me? you know part of it is is just making sure they get exposed to as many um different cultures as possible we are fortunate you know to live in northern virginia which is a very um diverse area and uh the kids are you know he's he's got uh, neighborhood crew that he plays, uh, basketball with is, you know, we've got white kids and black kids and, uh, Latino kids and, and they all just come to our house and they, you know, drink up all our soda and they, uh, and they, <laughs> and they play basketball outside. You know how it is. The neighborhood kids come by and just play. So my point being that, um, exposing him to the benefit of, uh, and, and savoring that diversity. Uh, teaching him that right now, um, and, and having him learn and talk to other kids and, and learn about the cultures that they come from, uh, the things that they do. Um, if I can instill that sort of love of, of humanity across <coughs> the board at him at this, uh, this age, I think he'll be a lot better equipped, uh, you know, to do that. They feel, you know, the stigma. They feel the targeting. My five year old daughter, when she was five at the time, early on the campaign trail asked me, uh, we had Trump on. Trump was on TV and he was, this was around the time the, he announced the Muslim immigration ban. And she's only five years old and she asked me, Baba, why does he hate Muslims? And she was only five. And, you know, that's really difficult as a parent to, mm-hmm. to take in. You're sitting here, you don't want your kid to even feel like she has to worry at the age of five that there are people out there that would prejudge her and not like her simply because of her faith. Um, 
So I don't remember what I told her exactly now. It probably was of no great import because what sat with me was the idea that she had at the age of five internalized uh, and, you know, it's not like we were sitting here with, and trying to show, have her watch the news all the time. Um, but she still was able to just from the little bits that happened to be on for a few minutes, she internalized. She actually like felt that, 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 that hatred. Um, and, uh, this is something that people in, in other communities, African American community, for example, definitely, uh, know something, one or two things about. Uh, you know, we, we, that uh, feeling targeted, feeling like a second class citizen, feeling inherently suspect, uh, inherently a threat, you know, whatever it is. Um, so that, that, that's something that's very difficult. And so I try my best to counteract that with as much, because if I believe strongly that, that diversity is our strength, we should be able to sample it. We should be able to mm. enjoy it and see the benefit of that. And so I want them to, to feel that and want them to share their own heritage and their own, where they're, where they're from with the other kids and learn from them as well. So I hope I'm doing the right thing. Wow. Well, lots to talk about. Um, Lots to think about. Um, anything else that you want to, you know, mention or leave uh, as we kind of wrap up the conversation here? Um, comes to mind. Well, you would you would ask me about a positive success story. Right. Um, I guess what comes to mind is a, 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 a two cases that we recently had, um, and these people were detained, and they both had actually one of them was from Nicaragua, and the other one was from Tunisia. They both had committed crimes, right? Uh, which had gotten them into trouble. They were permanent residents. They were slated for deportation. For one guy, it was his first time with the system. For this other guy, it was actually his second time. In other words, mm. he had beat deportation once before. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not condoning what they did. I'm not going to talk about their record or whatever, but, you know, they, they, they committed crimes. They served the time for them. And the issue was whether, the only thing that I'm pointing out, and I wrote this on, on Facebook as well, is whether or not we have a, uh, whether deportation is the immediate, um, is the solution to somebody, to an immigrant who comes here, has lawful status, say, has a green card, but commits a crime. And there's just sort of just been thinking over the past 20, 30 years in this enforcement heavy, uh, uh, culture that the government is, uh, has, has aspired to and is now appropriated that, um, if you're, uh, if you come here and doesn't matter what your roots are, doesn't matter what you've contributed, you screw up just once and you're out of here. And if you're out of here, then that's it. It's as if the problem is solved. And that's just, unfortunately, we look at deportation as a, um, as a panacea for everything that we don't like. Right. You heard Trump talking about deporting. You like an, there's an idea that you don't like, deport it. It's a person you don't like, deport it. You're out of here. They're gone. As if it's, you know, snap your fingers and, and, and people just disappear. Uh, and as long as they're not inside the country, um, then somehow the problem has been solved and justice has been restored. But that's not really what justice is about. You want to make sure that people, if they are able to redeem themselves, if they have shown that they can redeem themselves, aren't we a country? Shouldn't we be a country that wants to give people second chances? that wants to allow for that chance of redemption. And why do we think that deporting someone is uh, is going to be a solution, a solution to the problem? Um, well, we're a country of second chances so long as you were white. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, and, and it goes, it goes to that. And so in these two, in these two cases, one guy from Nicaragua and one from, uh, we were, uh, thank God, able to, to win relief for both of them. Um, 
about three four weeks uh, between uh, between the two cases. And we just, I just got word yesterday that the government waived appeal for the Nicaraguan, and um, and he was released today or released on 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 Thursday rather. Um, our other guy is back home recuperating. Both of them have been in detention for better part of a year, and that's just oh, immigration wow. detention. One guy was over a year, and the other one was about eight nine months. Um, where are they detained? At uh, immigration detention facilities. Oh, okay. One, in, it was in Virginia, and they were um, they're they're private run corporations, and yeah, you know that's like our that's prison system. Like our prison system, yeah, they're private corporations that run these facilities. So, a detention center is a nice political way of saying prison, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Okay. We need All to right. stop pretending. And in fact, right. it goes even further. They when they jail women and children coming in from like Central America, refugee and asylum seekers. They call those family detention, family residential centers. I'm sorry. That's the term that's used. So I actually got to volunteer. I went down to Dilly, Texas for a week last year, um, to volunteer at, uh, uh, the, um, South Texas family residential center in Dilly, Texas, about 60 miles from the Mexican border. And it's just, I mean, you know, as a parent, you see like kids being detained, right? Um, you know, and they, are telling these just, you know, horrific stories about what they've gone through and why they left El Salvador, why they left Guatemala, why they left Honduras. Uh, people that literally, you know, had no choice. Um, and, uh, you start to realize that, you know, I guess the, the, the bottom line, I'll, I'll end with this. Immigration law is about moving people across borders moving ideas, moving cultures, but most importantly, moving people. And every single person you talk to, no matter how much you want to say that, okay, well, that person needs to be out of here. They, they, they crossed the border unlawfully. They did this, they did that. Um, everybody has an actual story to tell Mm -hmm. and due process is the simple idea that we're not going to take away any right or, or, uh, uh, privilege that you have until we, you get a chance to tell your story. And it's cumbersome and it takes time and there's appeals and lawyers and blah, blah, blah. But it is integral part. You can't dispense justice without, um, without allowing people to tell their side of the story. You just can't. And the alarming direction that I see this going, and that's what happened with my two clients, the Nicaraguan and the, and the Tunisian. Um, they got a chance to tell their story. Yes, it took preparation and a lot of, you know, it need, it needed, uh, legal expertise, et cetera, et cetera. But at least they had a chance to tell their story. And so, and when they heard it and when the judge sat down and he'd spent his time to put out written decisions and decide whether or not, you know, in, in one case, he actually said it was a close case. Um, that it was, you know, difficult given the gravity and seriousness of, of his criminal record. But the fact that he was able to admit to it, you know, cry about it redeem himself and show that there were a lot of other uh, equities, at least when you, when you look at everything in, in, in balance, hey, the judge made another decision and the government decided not to appeal, which they could have, you know? Um, and so he was released and he was given a second chance. Both of them were given second chances. So um, that's what we really need to start protecting and calling out. And that's what I would urge all the listeners to to. Look at due process. There's a reason why that was a chant at the airport that night because people there recognized that if you take away someone's ability, you're not, we're not saying the laws all need to be changed overnight, et cetera, et cetera. But if you take away someone's ability to tell their story and, and the tools that they need, the lawyers that they need, you know, to be able to tell their story in a competent manner, 
um, yeah, you're not, that's not the country that we want to be. <clears throat> wow, Hassan, thank you so much for sharing these stories and your story. Um, and, you know, putting putting all of this in a context and, you know, we're not numbers and we're not just single individuals. These are families also. Right. These decisions impact generations. Um, but thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for taking the time out to share that today. My pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. All right. um, and to our listeners, um, you know, please uh, like our Facebook page, subscribe to the podcast, share, leave a review. Um, thank you so much for the support. Thank you for listening in. And um, we leave it at that and um, hope to have you with us on our next podcast here at Unsung Heroes at Podcast Detroit. Thanks. Okay.